All right, take your Bible, turn with me to Luke chapter 4. We're going to jump back in to where I left off two weeks ago. And Johnny, I do want to say thank you for pinch hitting for me. Uh, sorry I was away. I was down at the City of Industry, a place called Irwindale, right off the 10, Evergreen Baptist Church. Um, Rocky Seto is their pastor. Rocky was a linebacker, an All-American at USC, and then he was a uh, linebacker's coach for Pete Carroll and the Seattle Seahawks. So we had some fun conversations. Rocky's a good guy. He's been a pastor at that church for the last three years, and I was privileged to speak to them last Sunday, and I greeted them on your behalf. I uh, told uh, Dr. MacArthur just a little bit ago, wherever I go, I uh, greet people from Grace Community Church, Cornerstone, my pastor, John MacArthur, because God's people need to greet God's people. And uh, if you're our guest today, I want to greet you on behalf of Cornerstone and our church, just like Han did. We're so glad you're here, and we hope this season will be helpful to you. Well, I was telling some of you, uh, some asked, you know, Harry, how, how's your family doing? And, and uh, I, I do want to report um, that this has been a bittersweet Thanksgiving. Uh, my wife got sick, Karen, um, Thanksgiving week, like the week I taught you last, two weeks ago. I came home and she was feeling poorly, and uh, she was down all week. So Thanksgiving didn't happen at my house on Thursday. I'm 63. I've never not had Thanksgiving. Uh, other than the football games, it didn't feel like Thanksgiving. So we were delaying. Oh, and I do want to well, we were delaying until Sunday. And uh, Sunday, I preached down in uh, Los Angeles, and we were planning on the family gathering uh, for the afternoon. Karen had recovered, and turkey was in the oven. And uh, I came home from uh, the preaching experience down in Los Angeles and uh, could smell those smells. You know how you get excited when you smell those smells. And traditional turkey and the potatoes and all of the side dishes. And uh, we got a call from my, my daughter, that, who I think I shared with you two weeks ago, pregnant with triplets. She's in her triplets, like not because anything was added. The Lord just brought triplets. So she, uh, twin girls and a little boy. 15 weeks, and uh, she went in uh, early last week and got the good report that there's a 90% chance that you're going to be able to deliver these three, because triplets and the 30s don't always work out to a good outcome, so that was exciting. And then on Sunday last week, uh, we got the report that she was headed to the hospital, so Karen left the turkey in the oven. I stayed home. She went to Wendy's, who lives in Santa Clarita with us. Wendy and John's to watch Charlie, our grandson. Wendy went to the hospital. Her two little twin girls went to heaven last Sunday, and uh, Milo went to heaven on Monday. So, so it was a tough Thanksgiving week because we were excited about the chaos. Three little ones coming is chaos, and uh, so we were excited about that. And so we've we've had a uh, interesting season. In terms of Thanksgiving, um, we have had the privilege of practicing what we say when we say that the Lord does give and the Lord does take away. And those little ones belong to the Lord and the Lord deserves to be blessed and worshipped. And you don't practice your Christianity um, with just your lips. You practice it with your life. And so we're, uh, we're in a season of expressing gratitude to God despite what we don't understand. Um, We live in a fallen world. We live in a world that uh, longs for the day of redemption, Um, submitted to futility, Romans says, not of its own will, but creation longs for redemption like a woman in childbirth, which is a severe labor-like longing looking for relief. And uh, so it's in this season that you learn to worship, even though things are not as you would have hoped for them to be. Um, They were over last night, the first time they got out as a family. So Charlie and John and Wendy came over, and uh, God gave us a grace gift. Alabama beat Georgia, <laughs> and that was not expected. And uh, many of you know we're from Alabama the last 27 years prior to coming to California, so that may not matter to you. It mattered to us. 
So where there was a bit of soberness, there was also joy last night. So we were grateful. Well, I want to talk today about credible, winsome witness. Um, You're about to enter into the holiday season. Um, You have opportunities you don't normally have. This season gives you a bridge of conversation potentially because of the people you're with and the mindset of the Christmas celebration. And I know it's different. It feels different. Um, I prayed it that you would calibrate early, not late, not run into Christmas and, oh, yeah, 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 I've got to get my head together. I've got to get some gifts. I, I really do pray that you'll gift God with worship deserving of one who has blessed you with something wonderful. Uh, but you also have opportunities with your words and life to bear witness to the gospel that changes sinners that gives hope and help in a season that uh, we're all living through where the world is chaotic and people are discouraged and um, you bring something the world doesn't have. And we've talked about salt nearly so much that you may feel like you're over-salted, um, over-seasoned. But salt is a pleasing seasoning and it brings something, a savor of life, and I hope you'll bring it. And part of the way you bring it, please listen to this, is bearing witness to what God has done in you. When I'm up next Sunday, we're going to shift gears and focus on a credible gospel witness. The most powerful tool you possess is what Jesus Christ has done for you. It's your testimony. This is who I was. This is who I am, which is why this morning matters. And I would argue this. If you're going to be an influence, you've got to live what you say. You can't just say it. It undermines it. You can't say to your family, I believe in God. I'm so excited that Jesus came to redeem me of my sin and then live in a sinful way. Attitudes matter. Your words matter. The credibility of your life by way of purity and conduct matters. One of the blessings of Thanksgiving at my house on Thursday, I got a call from my former worship pastor, um, who he served with me for a decade in Birmingham, and he, uh, he calls me every Thanksgiving. And uh, this time I was able to pick it up because there was nobody in the house but me. And uh, so I, I answered the phone, and he was calling to do what he always does, normally by voicemail, to say, Harry, thank you. Thank you for coming into my home 20 years ago and calling me to repentance. Because he had been a non-credible Christian. He had stood, he had been on the platform on Sunday saying things that represented worship and the things of God, and then he was living a, a separate life privately. And 20 years ago, we sat in his living room, and as his pastor and as his brother, I had the opportunity and the challenge of calling him to repentance, and he repented. Went through the difficult journey of... Uh, restoration, but he was restored not to his place of ministry, but to our church. He stood up in front of the church two years later and said, please forgive me. And God took him and transformed him, and he's living on the beach of Destin, Florida. So if you don't believe in a God of grace, you should. If you've ever been to Destin, white sands, aqua blue water, some of the nicest beaches in the world. He has ministry there. He's married, remarried. Um, but he was saying this to me, and this is the part that connects with where we're going to be. He said, 20 years ago at Thanksgiving, my teenage son cussed me out on Thanksgiving, and I deserved it. He said, my life was a contradiction. And he said, Harry, today all three of my children are in my home and we're worshiping and celebrating together because a life aligned with the words. Credible Christian witness matters. And we talked for many weeks about the importance of constantly walking by the Spirit of God. If you walk by the Spirit, you will not fulfill the gratifi- or gratify the desires of the flesh. That's a guarantee. No way, no how, if you walk in the Spirit of God, will you live in the flesh bearing the fruits of the flesh. 
constantly walking is credible Christianity. I'm not talking about religious. I'm not talking about just the forms of Christianity. I'm talking about supernaturally empowered by the Spirit of God, submitted to the Spirit of God, God in you, prompting and directing through His Word, you submitting and following, He helping, you choosing to honor Him. And not the deeds of the flesh, but the outcome of that is evident fruit-bearing, supernatural fruit-bearing, countercultural relational fruit-bearing. I told somebody recently, attitude is everything, and you don't show a good attitude until you're in a bad attitude situation. And what the fruit of the Spirit is, is countercultural. You live differently, you respond differently, you talk differently, not necessarily with pious words in terms of the sounds, it's the attitudes and the purity of the words and the conduct that distinguishes you. Constantly walking, evident fruit-bearing, countercultural, relational, life-living. And then I began two weeks ago consistently winning, not sinning. Part of being a Christian is living a victorious Christian life. In our culture, we've come, become very comfortable, and it's true that grace is abundant. But we don't sin so that grace abounds. God forbid that we live that way. We've gotten very comfortable in our Christian culture, living sinfully so we can celebrate God's grace. Reckless with our words, careless with our attitudes, careless with our conduct. And somehow you celebrate, I'm broken, but Jesus loves me. Well, listen, you are broken and Jesus does love you, but it's not the celebration. It's, I was broken, Jesus changed me, and I'm living in a way that honors him. And if I do live inconsistent with my testimony, I need to feel grief over that. The sorrow of God that produces repentance. Because Christians need to live victorious. And repetitive, constant failure as a Christian and attitude and action is very difficult to promote the gospel grace of God from that platform. It undermines it. And my desire today is to encourage you with some practical observations from the king of everything on how you can be victorious, how you can live in a way that honors the Lord. So this is winning, not sinning, victory in the spirit, critical observations, practical applications for living like a Christian ought to live. Because you ought to be different. Not because you tell people I'm different. They see it. And you confirm it with those words. Or you say those words and confirm it with that, your conduct. All right, let's read the passage that we're going to unpack. Oh, I forgot my glasses today. So this is going to be interesting. All right, Luke chapter 4, verse 1. And let me, let me just set this up. Baptism of Jesus, chapter 3. So Jesus has been baptized as a coronation, and as a sympathetic representation. He identified with sinners, though he had not sinned. He heard the affirmation from heaven, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. This is a righteous submission. It's fitting for me to fulfill all righteousness. So the baptism is... Compassionate identification, righteous submission. It's divine affirmation. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And it is ministry consecration. This is the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. And now in chapter 4, verses 1 through 13, you have the temptation. That's what we know it as. And this is a virtue validation. This is a character confirmation. This is Jesus validating his credibility as a substitute. And it is also ministry preparation. These temptations will enable him by way of preparation to serve us as our high priest and intercessor. 
and it becomes a practical illustration of how you succeed in your Christianity. It's a victory illustration. This is what people do who overcome the devil, who overcome the sin and the desires of the flesh. Listen, Jesus became a man. That's what we're going to celebrate this month, the incarnation. And Jesus was tempted as a man. It is true that in his person and his humanity that he was fully God, even as he was fully man, but he takes his humanity into these 13 verses. And this is the living out of his manhood, perfect humanity, flesh, bone, blood, nerve, no shadow, as the docetist said. This is just a look-alike. He looks human, but he's really not. No, he's fully human. He's in the flesh, real body, made in all ways like his brethren. He goes into the wilderness, and he is tempted. And he's learning there through that temptation, and he's illustrating how you live when tempted. Chapter 4, verse 1. Watch this. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit. I want you to notice that, full. Not sipping on the Holy Spirit, full of the Holy Spirit. Not just connected, but dominated and governed. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan, that's where he was baptized, and when he was led around by the Spirit, so full of the Spirit, submitted to him, and then led by him around by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil, and he ate nothing during those days, and when they had ended, he became hungry. And the devil said to him, if you are the Son of God, first class condition, since you are the Son of God, it's not a question It's a claim. You are this. You need to take advantage of your capacity. Since you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, man shall not live on bread alone. Verse 5, And he, the, the, the enemy, the devil, led him up. Now think about this. Full of the Spirit, led by the Holy Spirit, yet led by Satan. Influenced, led him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, I will give you all this domain and its glory, for it has been handed over to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you worship before me, it shall be yours. Jesus answered him, It is written. This is a dominant theme. It is written, you shall worship the Lord, your God, and serve him only. Verse 9, and he led him, the enemy again, leading the one led by the Holy Spirit to Jerusalem and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered and said to him, It is said, synonymous with it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Verse 13, When the devil had finished, that's finished for now, when he had finished every temptation, He left him until an opportune time. Jesus became a man, and he was tempted as a man. And we are blessed and benefited not only from what he learned, but from what we can learn about how to have victory in difficulty. As the first Adam, or as the second Adam, rather, Jesus was tempted as the Son of Man not only as a perfect man, but as a representative man. As the first Adam, by disobedience, fell and fallen, was driven forth into the wilderness, so the second Adam comes to take the place of the first. 
Listen to what this commentator says. Tracking the steps of the first Adam, Jesus too goes out into the wilderness that he may spoil the spoiler. And that by his perfect obedience, he may lead a fallen but redeemed humanity back into paradise, reversing the whole drift of the fall and turning it into a rising again for many, end quote. Jesus does battle for humanity. This is the beginning of the intensive battle. It will culminate in Gethsemane and then the cross, the ultimate battle. And he was tempted severely in the Garden of Gethsemane. He is tempted severely here. When it says he was tempted in every way, I'm going to argue that these temptations provide categories that represent the core challenges of humanity. That if you want to be victorious as a Christian, you need to understand the vulnerabilities and the opportunities that the enemy will leverage in our humanity to take tests we have in life and leverage them as temptations. Jesus is led by the Holy Spirit to be tested, to be validated, to be instructed. He's going to mature in his humanity. He learns things from what he suffers. And he's also going to be tempted by the enemy to fall into sin and forfeit his unique opportunity. So he's full of the Holy Spirit. He's under the influence and control of the third person of the Godhead. He's in a hot, inhospitable place. He's in the wilderness, and which caused me to say last time, therefore you cannot measure your spiritual condition by your circumstances. He was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And the fact is, evidently, Spirit-led living includes tests and hard times. My difficult thanksgiving is not random. And you can be led by the Spirit of God. You can be full of the Spirit of God and be in some of the most difficult places you will ever go. Jesus led by the Spirit into a difficult place. And here's a truth you need to take home. Adverse circumstances God uses to develop you can be circumstances the devil uses to harm and hinder you, to damage and destroy you. So you cannot measure your spiritual condition by your circumstances. And this is God displaying how we have victory over sin. All right, so we talked about temptation number one, and I think these are three illustrations of one point. Here it is. Will Jesus, the second Adam, act independently of God like the first Adam did in Eden? Here's the core issue. Will you seek satisfaction for legitimate needs on your own? Will you function independently Or will you wait as he becomes hungry? Is hunger a legitimate need? Yes, it is. The issue wasn't whether the need was legitimate. The issue was, was the solution legitimate? And when Jesus says, man shall not live, he's talking about his perspective. I'm the son of man. I am the son of God, but I'm functioning here as a man. And as a man, I want to say this. The Bible says, it is written, man... Human beings do not live, they do not satisfy themselves, but by every word which proceeds out of the mouth of God, which is not saying you live on the Bible. It is saying you live by the prescriptions of God as he gives commands to provide for you. Anybody remember what passage Jesus quotes from? See, this is why you got to teach the Bible redundantly, because two weeks ago we looked at it. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 8. Victory as a Christian, listen to me, means you understand the truth of reality as described in the Bible. Jesus is showing you what people do who succeed when the enemy approaches. When hard things become 
challenges that tempt you to relieve yourself. This is about a difficult season. This is about a human being hungry and desiring to eat. And instead of doing what he could have done, son of God, turning stones into bread. I thought about this, stones to scones. Okay, he didn't do that. He could have done that. But he said, because of what he understood in the Old Testament, how does man in the wilderness survive? How does he find satisfaction? Deuteronomy chapter 8. This is where that passage Jesus is referencing. And I just want to remind you of it. Verse 2, chapter 8. You shall remember, says Moses, you shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness. See the word led? So you've got the Holy Spirit, you've got God leading Jesus into the wilderness, you've got the people of God led by God out into the wilderness. He has led you in the wilderness. You remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years, not 40 days, 40 years. Do you see the connection? To know what was in your heart. Oh, I skipped a phrase. That he might humble you, testing you. Sound familiar? Testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. Verse 3. He humbled you and let you be hungry. He let you be hungry. The hunger was purposed. The need was divine. And he fed you In your hunger with what? Manna. Manna. Literally, what's that? Never seen it before? God supernaturally, not in a way you would expect, sovereignly from heaven, food. He humbled you and fed you with manna which you did not know nor your fathers know that he might make you understand, here it is, that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Psalm 78, God spoke words. To meet the hunger needs of his people, he commanded that the heavens would open that the windows of heaven would open and manna would flow so that they ate and they were satisfied. What satisfied their hunger? Not the words, but the commandment that provided food because of the words. All right, listen very carefully. The way you overcome the temptation of satisfying legitimate needs is not to self-satisfy. But to trust that in the wilderness, when you don't have what you want, led there by the Spirit of God in a difficult season, it's a long season, it's an extended season, it's a test. And the test is, will you trust me to provide for you in the ways I prescribe, even if you've never seen it before? Or will you do your own solving in ways that are contradictory to the purposes I brought you into the wilderness? Are you going to wait on me? Are you going to trust in my command, my word, which will provide supernaturally in a way where you would go, wow, what's that? In a way that humbles you in your humanity in a way that glorifies me, because I'm not just testing you, I'm teaching you. I'm teaching you that you can wait on me, and I will provide in ways you couldn't expect. Here's the temptation when you're hungry. You're hungry for things that you desire. You're hungry for things that you need. Food here is put for a physical, legitimate need. You have the power to solve for yourself. It's not in concord with the purposes of God or the ways of God. And you say, no, I'll wait. Because I don't live by bread alone. 
even if I can go have it, I live on the things that God provides. The solution wasn't the problem. The source was the problem. How do you have victory? You have victory by recognizing that take care of this. And he says it is written. Get God's view on a matter. The word of God fills you so the word of God can guide you. The test became a temptation. You need to know how you get there by his provision. That's what the wilderness is. If you're in a difficult space, and I've not been 40 days in mine, but it's a difficult space. The difficult space is a designed space. It's purposed. It's not random. I sat with my daughter yesterday, and I said, Honey, you need to act like Jesus is pulling up a chair, and he's looking at all of us saying, First and foremost, I want you to know this is what I wanted. Your children are with me. This is my plan. I love you, and I want you to trust me. I will provide in my way what you need. But this season is about who you will trust, you or me. Legitimate needs, physical needs are opportunities for the enemy to leverage that need to cause you to justify satisfying your own legitimate desires. The flesh and the enemy will tempt you to look for solutions. You can control yourself. Everything from making a comfort purchase, eating comfort food, internet surfing, viewing Changing jobs, changing mates, changing locations instead of waiting, trusting, enduring, and praying. Spirit-filled living is always, listen to this, based on God's way, not your way, His timing, not your timing. And if that's clear, would you say amen? You can't succeed as a Christian unless you're locked down in that. Here's what I know about the flesh. It is a master at self-justification. My wife isn't, therefore I should. My boss isn't, therefore I will. This company doesn't appreciate me, I'll take care of me. There are a thousand ways that we justify. Bottom line is we must be full of the Spirit and connected to the archive of His Word or we will justify, listen to me, turning stones into bread. All right, let's look at temptation number two. I'm going to call this the legitimate need for significance. Legitimate need for significance. Let me define it this way. To have something significant and be seen as someone significant. That's the core temptation here. To have something significant in our humanity and to be seen as someone significant. To have purpose, privilege, and significance. That's what's being tested. Alexander McLaren writes, The relation of Jesus to God is not now the point of attack. In other words, will you the Father take care of me? But his hoped-for relation to the world, that's the question. Luke chapter 4, second temptation. Listen to what the enemy says about a legitimate desire. He led him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, I will give you all this domain and its glory, for it has been handed over to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you worship before me, it shall all be yours. Now, here are a couple of contextual thoughts. First of all, you need to remember Jesus was isolated, and he was irrelevant Maybe 30 years irrelevant, not just 40 days. He was deprived of legitimate and a natural sense of being valuable and significant. What was his vocation? Carpenter, artisan, mason. Do you know where they sat in the food chain of social life? At the bottom. Farmers were ahead of carpenters. 
Think construction worker, think blue collar. Think the guy who shows up, does the work, and goes home. He's not the designer of the building. He's not the contractor. He has a job to do. Jesus is a carpenter from a know-nothing town, or if they are known for something, it's not reputable. Can any good thing come out of where? Nazareth. So he's from a know-nothing town with a bad reputation. He's a carpenter, a mason, or an artisan, and nobility, and this is a historical quote, was not respectful of artisans. Often they were illiterate, they were low class. I'm going to argue that what made this temptation challenging was not only the isolation, but the vulnerability created by his status. He was vulnerable as we can be when we feel isolated and irrelevant. He wasn't a world changer. He's from a backwater place with a bad reputation, doing a job that isn't notable. The unmet legitimate need is a sense of significance. Let me give you some illustrations. When people don't validate your value, This temptation, this test becomes a challenge. When your spouse doesn't validate you by recognizing, rewarding, or affirming in a language or in a way that validates, you're valuable, you're influential, you're important, your life matters to me. Or a boss or a company that doesn't recognize your significance, worth, and contribution. Or you play on a team where the coach doesn't acknowledge your capacity or your contribution or your friends. Or even in your church. Nobody's chasing you to open the Bible. Nobody's chasing you for counsel. Nobody's validating your value. Nobody knows your name. Nobody knows... This is Jesus in this situation. And he goes from a no one, nothing, low scale in terms of social nobility and quality, and gets this offer. Hey, you worship me? You can have it all. The unmet legitimate need, sense of significance, and test is an open door for the enemy to tempt us with an evil provision. If we will worship him by choosing his devilish offer to secure personal satisfaction by choosing self-justified solutions, that to anybody else who looked at him, I'm not arguing that you're going to go toe-to-toe with the enemy in the wilderness. I do know that he has minions, but I want you to understand his power. I want you to understand his prerogative. Listen to the remarkable language. He showed all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. That's miraculous. That's physically and naturally impossible. Through some diabolical means and some power optically, he is able to expose Jesus to all that could be his. Optical effects and dreamlike images that seem real. I want you to consider the power of the enemy when flashed before Jesus' conscience while his eyes were fixed in the sandy wilderness, pyramids of Egypt, Colosseums in Rome, temples of Greece. He sees it like it's real. That's powerful. And the devil said to a spirit-filled man, I will give you. The world is mine. It's in my power. Anybody wonder who gave him the power? The first Adam gave him that power. God gave Adam dominion. Adam forfeited his dominion by choosing to submit to the enemy. I will give you, given to me, world of finance, world of politics, world of business. Listen, here's a statement you need to remember. People can be made successful by the devil. You ever wonder how people rocket to the top? The legitimate need is for significance, glory, privilege, and influence and impact. And recognize the enemy, verse 6, can do that for you. 
Blessing is not necessarily God. Recognize that the enemy can bless you with those things. And Adam, the first one, gave the enemy opportunity in the domain he forfeited. And all you have to do, here's the temptation, is worship. You don't have to, here's the heart of it, you don't have to work hard. You're going to get it all. That's the promise the Father gave to him. This is Psalm 2. After Jesus ascended, Daniel 7 talks about the ancient of days receiving one like the Son of Man. And he, the Son of Man, is coronated by the Ancient of Days, and there's given to him dominions and powers over nations and and all peoples. There was nothing outside of that dominion. That was Jesus' future upon his resurrection. But there was some difficult days between that moment and the moment that he was challenged by the enemy. The world wasn't going to be his easily or instantly And that's the temptation. The temptation is you don't have to work this hard. You worship me, I'll give it to you now. It's fast and pain-free. All right, like if you're going to succeed as a Christian, you have to understand microwave solutions are typically the enemy's solutions. He has the power to give it. He has supernatural capacity to, to tempt And to illustrate it, he has access in ways that are supernatural and diabolical. And if you're going to succeed, you're going to have to know what Jesus knew. It is written. Not what I see, not what I feel, not what you promise, but what God has already said. I do want to say this before I pass to the third temptation. I do want to say that I think worship here is obviously related to what you look for as a solution for your situation. Worship is connected to where you look for significance and satisfaction. Where do you look for your desires and your needs? It's really worship. You worship me And worshiping me means you submit to me and I'll give you the things you desire. Look, you don't have to go to the first church of Satan to be a Satan worshiper. If you praise God but do not look to God for your needs and your life issues, you're worshiping the one you're chasing as a solution for that situation. Your worship is tied to who you look to, the source of those legitimate needs. So here's a question. Are you looking to something other than God for your blessing? The question is not, are you blessed, but where did that come from? Listen, here's a proverb I ran into the other day. This is Proverbs 10.22. It is the blessing of Yahweh that makes you rich. And he adds no sorrow with it. Here's how you can tell if God's doing it. It doesn't have sorrow and stress attached to it. You don't have to manipulate for it. The blessing of Yahweh makes you rich. And there's no sorrow attached to it. The enemy, when he blesses, when you, he manipulates and you substitute God's solutions for the enemy's solutions, there's no internal joy. Sorrow, sadness, stress. You ever wonder why celebrities have such a difficult time enjoying everything that you would think somebody would desire? Because you can have it all and not be satisfied at all. But if God gives it, there's joy in it. There's no sorrow with it. So Jesus says it is written, you should serve, you worship. Verse 8, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and watch this, and serve him only. True worship is serving God and the things of God. 
The test and temptation is trusting someone or something else to fulfill the legitimate desire to be significant instead of trusting God and waiting on the fulfillment of his perfect plan and promise. Do you know what you are? Guaranteed. Being a co-regent, a joint heir with the son who receives everything. The issue isn't the debate on the end. The issue is what you're going to choose on the way to that promised end. Will you trust me or will you trust him? Will you wait on God and worship God and rely on his timing, his path, and his way? Or will you take the fast microwave solution that doesn't provide satisfaction in the end? Here it is. To have personal value and worth deserving of being protected. This is the test of security because I have worth and value. Let me say it again. Demanding affirmation and proof of the legitimate desire. It is a legitimate desire to feel like I'm protected because I'm valuable. Personal value and worth deserving of being protected. Listen, if I drive aggressively on the freeway with Mrs. Walls sitting beside me, she gets angry at me. She gets angry at me, and I say, look, I'm just trying to survive out there, honey. It's the way everybody drives. I'm from New Jersey. We really drive that way. But she does. She gets frustrated. And this is the comment, why are you so frustrated? Because I want you to protect me. And I feel vulnerable when you drive this way. You may have confidence you can hit that opening, but I don't. (laughs) People have a legitimate desire to feel like they're worth being protected. That's the test. I'm worth being protected. Throw yourself down from the pinnacle of the temple. Now, the southeastern corner, the royal portico, 450 feet to the bottom. So maybe that's where Jesus was. Again, supernaturally transported, moment of time, high space, high place, throw yourself down. The temple, maybe it's because, not just that it's the highest location, but because the people of God are there, and if you throw yourself down and God does the rescue act for you, it validates your significance and your person, and they'll worship you because God took care of you. So this is another fast pass path, not at Disney, but in, in life reality where the enemy says, do this. And God will validate your value. Now, here's a couple of problems with this. It's interesting. Jesus is using the word of God to defeat the enemy of God. And I think it's important to be able to say that if Jesus, who is the word, uses the written word to defeat the enemy by the word, guess who ought to do that too? So the enemy uses the word to tempt and legitimize this temptation and test. The third temptation and test, the enemy recognizes the influence and impact of the word of God, and he tempts, listen to this, by quoting a part of it, leaving out a key part of it, and then misapplying it. So here's a notable focal point for temptation. Number one, the word of God is essential. Get God's view on a matter and make sure that the view you have is legitimate hermeneutically. Do you know what that means? The science of interpretation. You're actually representing what the Bible means by what it is saying. The enemy is using the Bible. Turn back to Psalm 91. where there's a lot of promises made in Psalm 91. Matter of fact, you could use the coronavirus pandemic as an issue to apply the promise that God will deliver you from the snare of the trapper, from the deadly pestilence. 
Verse 10, chapter 91, the Psalms, No evil will befall you, nor will any plague come near your tent. It would appear that there's a promise that Corona can't get me because I am a truster in God. I'm a part of God's covenant people. And then the enemy quotes to Jesus, verse 11, For he will give his angels charge concerning you to guard you. Now, here's what the enemy left out, in all your ways. In your traffic pattern of life, not in ways that you create to require God's protection, but in the normative pattern of life, God will take care of you. That's what he left out. In all your ways has to do with your life ways. Your life journey, not your sinful life choices. Let me give you an example. I can't claim this promise if I'm going to go rob a bank. God's going to take care of me in all my ways. I'm a robber today. I'm protected. Well, you understand by the exaggeration of that illustration, this is not a claim of universal protection no matter what I do which is going to apply what Jesus says, hey, throw yourself down. Sinful choice, God's obligated to take care of you. He left that part out. This promise does not guarantee protection when sin's involved and the danger that ensues from it. Victory in the Spirit requires not only knowing and using the sword of the Spirit, but rightly applying it. And I want you to understand the enemy can lead you astray with the Bible. So what does Psalm 91 involve? Well, Psalm 91 comes in the fifth section, is in the section, rather, the fourth section of the Psalms of five. So there's five sections in the Psalms. And this is section number four, Psalm 90 through Psalm 106. These Psalms are written to encourage God's people who are despairing at the end of book 3. This is Psalm 89 as the end of book 3, where the people of God are under judgment from God and the promises of God seem to be lost because of the Davidic promises are not being fulfilled. Matter of fact, you can look at Psalm 89 verse 38, where the third book ends, you can cast, this is what the people of God say, but you have cast off and rejected. You've been full of wrath against your anointed. And Psalm 89 is about God's faithful promise to David, and God's people are not enjoying the benefit of that that, uh, promise. Verse 31, chapter 89, Psalm 89, If they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgressions with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. In other words, God made a promise to David. I'm going to put you on the throne and I'm going to put your, your lineage on the throne. And there will be blessing attached to that. And that's the rehearsal of Psalm 89. God, you're faithful, you're faithful. There will be consequences. This is the consequences of sinning. And therefore, they say in verse 38, but you have cast us off and rejected. You've been full of wrath against what? This is chapter 89, verse 38. You've cast us off and you've rejected us. You've been full of wrath against your anointed. You've spurned the covenant of your servant. You've profaned his crown in the dust. In other words, you're not fulfilling your promise. Why? Why are we under your wrath? We have violated your promises. Verse 46, how long, O Lord, we will, hide, will you hide yourself forever? Will your wrath burn like fire? Psalm 89 is the last book of book 3. Psalm 90 is about Moses and the Mosaic Covenant and the blessings of God to Moses when he delivered God's people from Israel. But even Psalm 90 includes these words. Verse 7, you've been consumed, we have been consumed, chapter 90, Psalm, for we have been consumed by your anger and by your wrath we've been dismayed. You have placed our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. 
for all our days have declined in your fury. Verse 11, who understands the power of your anger and your fury according to the fear that is due you? Psalm 89 and Psalm 90, the beginning of the fourth book, is the response to say that sin brings what? Loss, judgment, fury, consequences. Psalm 91 says, if you are submitted in a covenant relationship to God in obedience, then God will protect you from the judgments that come upon those who are living out the consequences of their choices and sins. Psalm 91 is a promise that says you can count on God to take care of you in difficult days. The evil or harm spoken of in Psalm 91 is not the frequent trial or hardship that affects all humanity due to the fallen nature of this world. It is speaking of harm that comes to God's enemies and God's people who disobey his covenant purposes and law. This is the recognition that there's a curse related to judgment. And Psalm 91 says there's shelter for those from the curse of judgment who find their sanctuary in God. Not because they're sinning, but because they're trusting. And when God's bringing judgment, God's people who are trusting in him through obeying him and relying on him and depending upon him, they enjoy a promise from God that they will not endure the judgment that the sinner and the outsider endure. So now verse 11, for he will give his angels charge concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will bear you up in their hands that you do not strike your foot against a stone is a promise of protection from the judgment of God to those who are obedient to the will and the ways of God. So here is what Jesus is doing to those who would be victorious following his example is the recognition that you need to interpret God's word properly. It's not a carte blanche promise. It is a promise to those who are covenant people protected from the judgment and consequences of sinful people. Demanding affirmation and proof of of the legitimate desire to have value and worth deserving of being protected is a testing of God. God I'm not going to do this thing, so you have to prove anything to me. Presumption not only breeds strife, it can result in great distress and catastrophic destruction. Listen, don't put yourself in a position where you need a miracle. This is not about God serving you. God is not your genie in a bottle that's obligated to bail you out when you make sinful choices, presumptive choices. Cast yourself down. Show these Jews you're valuable, that you're the son of God. You, you, you do what causes them to elevate you. You do what causes God to value you by protecting you. I'm going to distort a promise I'm going to pervert a desire. I'm going to make a promise to you from God's word. And Jesus says, no, you shall not test the Lord your God. You don't put him to the test. You don't put him in a position where he has to do anything. Listen, the devil is allergic to the Bible. He doesn't care about your thoughts. He doesn't care about your friend's thoughts. He only responds to the words of God. Here's what you can do. Have a Bible study with the devil if he's tempting you. He can't handle the sword of the Spirit. All right, I'm out of time. Time to go to church. This story gives you, this practical illustration gives you the key to victory, which is knowing the enemy's strategy and tactics, knowing where you're vulnerable. Where are you vulnerable? Validate me as valuable. Validate my significance. Meet a legitimate need. 
makes you vulnerable to the super fast microwave solutions of the enemy instead of looking to God, his word, his timing, his way. Look to God, not putting him to the test, not putting him in a corner, but waiting on his timing, his way, his purposes. Christians have victory over sin and the temptations of the flesh when they utilize the words of God and they rely on the provisions and promises of God, his timing, his way. Self-satisfaction will kill you. Self-satisfaction will ruin your testimony. Self-satisfaction, self-justification will exchange all that is good for all that is needed. Victory over sin is winning over sinning, and winning over sinning makes credible your testimony for God. Can you say amen to that? Father, thank you for the time this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to dig into this text and just examine what sits behind these things. Some of it's obvious, some of it not so obvious. And to think of Jesus in his humanity, living in a way that validated his virtue on you so that we will be evident worshipers of God, not the enemy of God not substituting your provisions for self-satisfactions. Lord, that's our prayer, and we ask it together in Jesus' name. Amen.